A nobleman watches from afar. His gut twists. His palms sweat. A few weeks ago, he would have traveled 20 miles to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Passover. He's not just an everyday Jew. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the ruling councils. He's respected and he's admired. But for months, he has had this growing interest that has moved to loyalty and to faith in this Jesus of Nazareth. But now the same Jesus that he had a growing faith in hangs dying on a cross. You can smell death in the air. You have to assume that on various occasions he's considered going public, saying that I think this Jesus could be the Messiah, but someone must have pulled him aside and said, hey Joe, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And so he's been quiet. He's been a secret disciple. And now Jesus dies. He hears the mocking taunts. People saying, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. And finally, as darkness covers the land, he sees Jesus take his last breath. Now, if if Joseph of Arimathea does nothing, Rome would be happy to let this person who just died on the cross rot for days. It would take someone with distinction, it would take someone with a little bit of political clout to be able to persuade a Roman governor to take that body down. The disciples have fled. A few women remain. And so, think of the internal work going on in Joseph of Arimathea. Am Am I ready to come into the light? Is it worth it now to identify with Jesus of Nazareth? Or will Joseph let Jesus' body rot? What would you do if you thought if you, what would you do if everyone thought Jesus was a joke? What would you do if everyone thought Jesus was an imposter? Would you come into the light? Would you publicly identify yourself as a follower of Jesus? We'll get back to Joseph in a second. What's what's the backdrop of this story? What's the background of some uh, mention of Joseph of Arimathea and the mention of some women? What's the backdrop? Certain death of Jesus. He's dead. Witnesses saw it. Experts at capital punishment confirmed it. The soldiers said he's dead. A few hours later, he is given a proper Jewish burial. He's dead. He's really dead. He's not mostly dead. Now that makes me think of the 1987 movie, The Princess Bride. Maybe you guys saw this movie. Will Wesley be able to save Princess Buttercup? 
But then Wesley's tortured to death. He's gone. But lo and behold, some of the heroes of the story find Wesley, and they know of a man in town named Miracle Max, played by the affable Billy Crystal. This is how the scene transpires in the book. They knock on the door, and Miracle Max yells out, Beat it, or I'll call the Brute Squad. Fezzik, played by Andre the Giant, says, I'm on the Brute Squad. Miracle Max sees Fezzik, says, You are the Brute Squad. Miracle Max, pointing to the dead body, He probably owes you money, huh? I'll ask him. Inigo Montoya, he's dead. He can't talk. Miracle Max, Woo-hoo-hoo, look who knows so much. It just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well then, uh, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. Inigo Montoya asks, what's that? Miracle Max says, go through his clothes and look for loose change. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Jesus is all dead. He's all dead. The soldiers have already gambled for his clothes. If there was any loose change, it's gone. Jesus is dead. Now, I just want to... At least there's a couple of reasons why his death is so significant and why every single gospel writer goes to great lengths to confirm he's dead. Uh, first, there's theological reasons why Jesus' death matters. Uh, under the old Jewish system, when someone had sinned against God and that relationship with God had been severed, and the person who had committed the sin was under God's judgment, there was only one thing they, they could do. They would bring a sacrifice to the temple. They'd bring a beast, and they would lay their hand on the beast, symbolizing a transfer of my sin onto this beast. The beast becomes a substitutionary sacrifice or a substitutionary atonement. The beast is killed, all dead. And the forgiven sinner gets to go home. Jesus' death matters theologically because he is that sacrifice. He is the substitute that has to die so that forgiven sinners can go home. But it matters historically. Uh, If you think about it, if you read history, and I love history, if you read history, history is the record of people living and dying. Living and dying. Living and dying. Jesus dies in history. matters historically because three days from now, he will rise in history. Every famous person in the history book died. Only one resurrects from the grave, which means there's now hope. If there's a resurrection on the back end of death for one person, then there is hope in real space-time in history for other people to resurrect from the dead. So Jesus' death matters theologically, it matters historically, but it also matters uh, personally, like your own life. Uh, In that, one of the things that I appreciate about Christianity is that Christianity does not ignore harsh realities. There are real grave 
uh, travesties that happen in people's lives. The worst of which is death. But we have um, illnesses, and we have uh, the breakdown of relationships. I don't know if you know this, but in the religion of Hinduism, they have a, a doctrine or a tenant, and it's called maya. And maya is a, a Sanskrit word, and it means something to the effect of magic or illusion. And what the Hindus believe is that all of your life, all of your feelings, all of your pains, all of your sufferings, and even death itself are illusions. To experience nirvana, the ultimate goal of Hinduism is to escape the illusion, to get out of your own personality, to get out of your own individual life. Ignore it. It's not real. They're illusions. Come meditate for a while and experience your escape. But Christianity doesn't ask people to escape reality. It helps you to look it in the eye and say, there is still hope. There is grieving, but there is hope. There is sorrow, but there is surprising redemption. So Jesus is certain, real, not mostly dead, all dead, death. It matters theologically, it matters historically, and it matters personally for your life. You don't have to ignore tragedies. But in the middle of this dark day, the darkest day in history, probably both literally and figuratively, this dark day in history, there are a couple of rays of faith, hope, and love that are there to pierce the darkness of this day. Because in the midst of this dark day, there are two sets of surprising disciples who say that in the midst of Jesus' certain death, I will act in faith. I will act in hope. I will act in love. And we got, and they're listed here. They're these women. And one Jewish member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, I would call, them, I'm going to put them under two sets. They're the, I'm done staying in the shadows person. I'm done staying in the shadows. That's Pilate. I'm done. I'm done being in the shadows. I'm coming into the light. But then you have the second group, and that is, we will hold on until the last minute. And those are the women. Let's talk about the women. They're identified there in verse 40. Jesus is, breathes his last breath, his last cry. He dies. And there are the women watching from a distance. Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. We know from other gospel accounts, a few other women probably present. How are they described? Verse 41, it says, in Galilee, these women had followed him. Right? So in Galilee, they say, at the beginning of his ministry, when this all got started, they were there. What were they doing? They cared for his needs. Many of the other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem, they were also there. There they are. They were there at the beginning. They're there at the end. The last verse in our section says they see where he's buried. And if you jump into the next verse or the next chapter, they're going to go there on Sunday morning to provide care one last time. They're the, we're going to hold on to the last minute disciples. 
I am <laughs> regularly impressed, sorry men, with women who are like this. That they never give up. They have this quiet courage. Thinking of one of the sisters in our church, Mary Taylor, well now 80 plus. In her 70s, she is caring for all of the women her age, driving them to the hospital, making sure they're at their appointments, visiting them, calling them, checking in on the lonely. She is now and will be faithful to the end. I thought of a woman in our church in Boone named Iola Whitford. Uh, and this was this dear saint that uh, she continued to love and pray for a large chunk of the church that left unhappily. But she loved them to the end. In the midst of certain death, right, this is, this, is the, this is the faith that persists after the cancer diagnosis. This is the faith that persists after you walk away from the burial of someone that you love, a close family member. That in the midst of the darkness, I will act in faith. I will hold on to Jesus until the very end. And what, what's beautiful about these women is they just did what they could. They provided care. On Easter morning, they're going to bring some spices to cover up what they believe is going to be a, a stench that's so foul that they're just going to cover a dead body in spices. Whatever they could do, they were choosing to do. We will be faithful to the very end, disciples. I think Jesus talked about people like this. Talks about them in Matthew 25. Maybe you remember this passage, Matthew 25. It's talking about at the end of time when Jesus comes to judge, trying to figure out who's who, right? I don't know about you, but my mom paid like $19 for me to be in the who's who book of America when I graduated from high school. My name with fonts like six, right, that you read with the magnifying, there he is, right? That's how it works. Well, the real who's who happens at the end of the time when Jesus comes in glory and he identifies who are my children, who have been faithful. In this, in this passage, it's who are sheep who have been faithful to the shepherd versus goats, the imposters. Matthew 25, verse 31 reads, this is the words of Jesus, our Savior. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd shepherds the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. Now, again, like if you read these passages a lot of the time, you kind of fly by them. I mean, this is like end of Star Wars episode four kind of gathering, right? If you can, met, I mean, this is everyone. This is celebration. This is victory. This is where we're doling out the awards. This is who gets the medals. This is who gets on stage. That's what's going on. The glory of the glory, glory of glory is present. He's saying, who was with me? Come. Be blessed. There's Chewy in the background. Right? Verse 35, these, who are the blessed ones? He says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Do you see what that is? It's people who did what they could. To those who had needs, they met them. 
Well, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When you saw a need and you met it, you were ministering to Jesus Christ. Some of you remember C.S. Lewis's famous line at the end of his essay, The Weight of Glory. You have never met a mere mortal. You are working among immortals who have been made in the image of God. And when you care for them, the way you treat them brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ or shame, which is what he goes on to next when he says, verse 41, but then I will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed. Again, can you experience, I mean, again, Star Wars, episode four, end, huge banquet, everyone celebrating. You here, you have to leave. You do not get to stay here for this. This is not the place for you. You have no place here. This is not your celebration. In fact, you're cursed and you will be gone right now because you are going to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 42, because I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes. You did not clothe me. I was sick. Prison, you did not look after me. And they also answered, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and eating clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these you did not do for me, and then they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. Um, I think a lot of times we miss what it's saying here. A lot of times we're so worried about not sinning. I don't want to do anything bad. These people are held in judgment for what they did not do. What they did not do. The hungry stayed hungry. The thirsty stayed thirsty. Those out in the cold stayed cold. The unadopted remained unadopted. The foster people stayed in foster. I mean, this is what you did not do for the least of them. That was their judgment. And so, in the Gospel of Mark, the Holy Spirit said, we're going to highlight these women, disciples who were faithful to the end, who did what they could, and they would pierce the darkness on the darkest day and say, we will act in faith, hope, and love. To the end, they loved. But on that day, there was another man. And he said, I'm done staying in the shadows. I will be a secret disciple of Jesus no more. As Pilate boldly went to Pilate. I want to bring that body down. I want that body to be placed in my tomb. Probably a three-hour window where they could bury this body before the night would fall and the Sabbath would begin. Most likely, Pilate, uh, excuse me, Joseph of Arimathea uh, had to use his servants had to muster, maybe there was some cash under the table, who knows, like everything that he can do in the, in the short amount of time, we have got to honor this person who has died and give him the best Jewish burial that we can in the three hours that we have. 
I will not let him be treated in burial as he has been treated in death. Which is a prophecy fulfilled in Isaiah 53. He will be buried like a rich man among the rich. Joseph of Arimathea says, I'm not going to be in the shadows no longer. This injustice that has been done to my Savior, no more. I will stand for justice. I will stand for what's right. I will do everything that I can in this moment. And he does. It's really beautiful. Who knows what he was putting at risk? Maybe his seat on the Jewish council? Certainly his reputation would have been on the line. And yet he acts in faith, in hope, in love. We could go lots of directions with Joseph. Let me just suggest two. Um, First, let's talk about the issue of justice. I mean, I do think, I do pray that it would be the people who name Jesus as their Lord and Savior who would know as the greatest fighters of justice in our country and not people who don't profess Jesus, right? The ones who know that Micah 6.8 tells us that the person who is going to be the representative of God in this world is one who does justice and loves mercy and walks humbly with God. That, that's, our, that's supposed to be our calling card, not other organizations in the city or in the country. Martin Luther King hits the mark when he writes this. I think I have this quote. It says, a man dies when he refuses to stand up for that which is right. A man dies when he refuses to stand up for justice. A man dies when he refuses to take a stand for that which is true. What I love about that quote is, I think Joseph of Arimathea had his first day of real life when he stood up and said, I will make sure this man gets an honorable bearable. He quit dying that day. You know, when you read through the Bible and you, you, someone gets a, a one-second mention, it's worth pausing and meditating. Why did Mark, why did the Holy Spirit say, Joseph of Arimathea needs to be named? He needs to be named because he was done with not being identified as a follower of Jesus. He was done with the injustice that had just been done against the most innocent man in history. And he stepped forward, out of the shadows. You know, it's always tempting in culture to remain quiet about hot-button issues because people will lump you in with certain sets of people just because you defend what is right. I would just ask us to be identified with Jesus and just not be concerned how the chips fall. We should fight against poverty. We should fight against every form of racism imaginable. We should fight against bigotry. We should fight against uh, the mistreatment of immigrants and strangers. Why? Because that's the heart of the Father. There's always going to be a cost for your action, but if you sit on the sidelines, the suffering will remain in the pits. Uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, he said this once, He says, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, by the way, that's really similar to what Jesus said, if you do not do what is right, you don't act. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. Every time you feed the hungry, 
and care for the orphan. You stand with Jesus and you are not neutral. But, you know, even more significant, I know that's hard to say, but even more significant is failing to identify with Jesus himself. Jesus said that himself earlier in Mark chapter 8. Maybe you remember when Jesus talked about being his disciple. And he says there's a cost to not being his disciple. Mark 8, 38 says this. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. On Good Friday, Joseph of Arimathea says, I will not be ashamed to be known as a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. No matter what amount of worldly shame was at risk, he said, I will be identified as one of these followers of Jesus. I will not be in the shadows any longer. I think one of my prayers as I prepared this sermon is that maybe there's someone in this room, not maybe, there is someone in this room that you have been in the shadows about your faith with Jesus Christ. Shame to bring his name up, to bring his name into your work or among your neighbors or among your family. And people around you are dying. People around you are lost. Will you come out of the shadows? Down with him. Regardless of what you think, Jesus has never been popular, even in the 1950s. And so when you come into the light and say, I'm with him, I identify with Jesus Christ, and I'm a part of his kingdom, his kingdom of love and mercy and justice, there will be shame on this side of the grave, but there will be glory on that side of the grave. Where are you? Who do you want to be? Right? And some of you are like these faithful women. You've been faithful for a long time. I just encourage you, be faithful until the end. Some of you, it's the day to come out of the shadows. I would Jesus. I will live for him and I will fight for his causes. And then maybe there's some in this room that have maybe been on the fence or on the wrong side of the fence of I am not a follower of Jesus. But as I watch him die, and as I see the kind of people who follow him become, I want to know this Jesus. What I, what I find a marvel is the great faith of Joseph of Arimathea and these women on the darkest day in history. But we don't live on the darkest day of, darkest day of history. We live on the backside of the light of the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've seen and heard of the victory that has come on the backside of Jesus' death. He rose triumphantly. Though all who believe in his name will not perish but have everlasting life. We follow the Jesus that, who has modeled that though you die, you will live. And so what will it look like for us to believe in this Jesus and to live like this Jesus and to be about the causes that Jesus has on his heart? I think of uh, the 19th century man named George Mueller. George Mueller was an Englishman Christian and wanted to be a pastor. But when he saw orphans in Bristol, England, and he said, those orphans need beds. Those orphans need love. Those orphans need food. Those orphans need an education. 
And he pressed on and pressed on to make sure that every single one of those orphans had a place. And people thought he was crazy, but good crazy. I can't remember which pastor in America says, says it, but he's so right. He's like, is normal working for anyone? Is it, do you want to be normal? Or do you want to be crazy for Jesus? George Mueller once said this, the greater the difficulty to be overcome, the more it will be seen to the glory of God how much can be done by prayer and faith. The harder it is, when it happens, through the power of God, as we act in faith and in prayer, God gets the glory. So friends, if you're holding on to Jesus, hold on to the last minute. Been in the shadows, come into the light. If you've never come home, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Trust in him. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for my friends who would gather on the third day of a new year. Lord, your mercies are new every morning, but it is a good reminder each year to know that your mercies are new every year. Our possibilities this year are as great as the promises of God. And so, Lord, we pray that we would act according to your promises. We would act according to your word that we would believe and not doubt. I think of what Paul prays for uh, the saints in Philippi, that they would be bright, shining lights in a dark generation. I pray that for those present today, that they would be, dark, or they would be bright lights amidst darkness. There would be great faith, hope, and love evident in their lives that pierces the darkness of whether it's their home or at work, among their neighbors or our culture, Lord, that they would identify proudly and boldly as members of the family of God, that they would identify with Jesus Christ, and then they would do what they can. They would give their bits. They would hand over the fishes and loaves of their faithfulness and trust God for the miraculous. We thank you, God, for your word. We pray now that we live in light of your word. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.